As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Romans. We're beginning our study this morning through the book of Romans, and it's going to take a little bit of time. We're going to be here for uh, quite a while, and um, I'm trusting that it's going to be incredibly beneficial to our souls. And I pray that this morning it's going to be a helpful starting point for us to get ourselves kind of reoriented in thinking about what is primary, what ought to be the priority when we come to the Word of God, when we come specifically to the book of Romans, what is it that the Apostle Paul is establishing for us out the gates? I think what he's laying out for us this morning is this sense of gospel identity. There are endless ways that we can define ourselves. We can define ourselves by our ethnicity, by our nationality. We can define ourselves by our skin color. We can define ourselves by our gender or our geography. We can define ourselves by our politics. We can define ourselves by our personality. We can define ourselves by our age or by our appearance, different attributes or characteristics of ourselves, by our family, our family name, by our income and our socioeconomic status, by our own abilities and interests or affiliations. There is a myriad of ways our identity is being established It's being shaped and formed through education, both formal and informal. It's shaped oftentimes, whether we realize it or not, by our environment, by our circumstances, by our culture. It's shaped in dominant ways by the media and by the entertainment that we choose to consume and feed ourselves with. We are constantly being shaped by ideologies and worldviews, and in effect, they're bearing down upon us, shaping the way we perceive ourselves and our individual identity. See, why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's because in many ways, your beliefs inform who you become. To put it The reverse way, you become what you believe. This is inevitable. Your identity will determine your behavior, what you fight for, what you find hope in, what you ultimately give yourself to, what will ultimately define your life when you get to the end. Who we are shapes how we live. Better yet, it shapes for what or whom we live. Will we live for ourselves? Will we live for some cause, some earthly initiative? Or will we live for the one who created us? And as we dive into Romans, this is the preliminary concern of the Apostle Paul. He begins this letter by establishing this idea of gospel identity, and he calls us to both understand it and embrace it so that we can make the most out of the letter that he writes. In many ways, this epistle is an exposition, a long form of the gospel itself. It is, in some effect, Paul's magnum opus, maybe the greatest letter ever written. It has impacted more people in history than we can count. 
And all Paul essentially does is unfold for us the the manifold wisdom of God in the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's fitting that this morning we see what it looks like to be grounded in gospel identity by looking at three separate individuals or groups, you could say, Paul, Jesus, and then generally speaking, believers. Paul begins in verse 1, he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at gospel identity this morning, I want to first look at Paul, and here's what you see about the way he thought about his own identity. You see a God-surrendered identity. Paul begins this letter by simply identifying himself as the author. This is common in a lot of the New Testament epistles. He's writing somewhere between 55 and 58 AD, probably to the latter end of those dates. He wrote this letter in all likelihood, near the end of his third missionary journey while he was either in or near the city of Corinth. He had spent three months there awaiting the end of winter weather so that he could sail safely back to Caesarea and make the trek to Jerusalem. Paul lets us know in chapter 15 of verse 28 why he's making this journey and why he's laid up here. You see, Paul had been spearheading a a monetary collection for the destitute Christians in Judea, and so it was his desire to make the trek back to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem to go on to Rome, and then from Rome he wanted to go into Spain to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he finds himself here in this three-month period waiting for the weather to turn so that he can make the journey across the sea. And you could argue, as you think about what Paul is doing here, and you think about where Paul is in his life and ministry, you could argue that right here, right now, Paul is in the prime of his spiritual life. He's at the top of his spiritual game, so to speak, in his walk with the Lord. He had spent 20 years at this point in ministry. I mean, he had given himself to the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his walk with the Lord now was probably closer than it ever had been before. And I think that's reflected in the depths and the riches and the wonders of this epistle to the Romans. And so he writes out of the overflow of the the depths of his relationship with God. And he writes again this magnificent letter. But at the very beginning, Paul actually establishes for us his ultimate or primary identity. And he does so in three ways. He gives to us, first, his master, second, his calling, and third, his purpose. And all of these help us understand what it looks like to have a God-surrendered life. First, notice this, he talks to us about his master, 
When Paul wants to tell you who he is, he identifies himself first and foremost as a servant, or the Greek can be literally translated, a slave of Christ Jesus. He does not want to be known for anything he's done. He doesn't want to be known for anything he's accomplished, for any accolades he may have achieved. He simply wants to be known first and foremost as a servant of his Lord and his Master, Jesus Christ. All Christians are meant to be slaves of Christ. And Paul is simply identifying himself as a faithful disciple. He recognizes that at the end of the day, apart from any calling that God has placed upon his life, upon any gift that the Lord has given to him, he is first and foremost a slave, a disciple, a follower of Christ Jesus. As a result, he is completely at the disposal of his master. He is surrendered entirely unto him. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to continue to help us understand his identity. He reminds us, secondly, of his calling. He is, yes, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Notice this, called to be an apostle. That term apostle there ties him to the 11 that Jesus had chosen, supplemented by Matthias, the replacement of Judas in the book of Acts. We know this, that Paul was unique. He had been given a unique calling and a unique ministry. While Paul held the name Saul, he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to put them in jail because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And while on the way there, he was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He saw the blazing glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It stopped him dead in his path, and he heard the voice of Jesus from heaven speaking directly to him. In that moment, Paul experienced a conversion. He was transformed entirely as he recognized who Jesus truly was, who he had been persecuting. And as a result, Jesus Christ takes this man Saul and he changes his name to Paul and he tells him that he will have a unique ministry. He will be an apostle, a messenger, an ambassador who will go unto the nations. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles. He will spread the gospel far and wide. He was called by God to play a specific role in reaching the nations. He was gifted by God to fulfill this calling, and he wholeheartedly surrendered all he had to this calling, evidenced by the missionary journey, journeys that are recorded through the book of Acts, by the life that he displays throughout his writings. He left his old life behind, and he embraced the new life that God had called him to as an apostle. And that new life and identity was defined thirdly by this, his purpose. Paul says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. God had uniquely consecrated him unto this ministry. He has one primary job, and that is to protect and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. He is, in effect, a royal ambassador chosen by the king himself to herald the good news of God. He is set apart for the gospel of God. That is to say, the gospel that is both from God and the gospel that is about God. God. 
When you put all of this together, you get a picture of one who embraces a God-surrendered identity. He is not trying to establish his identity. He is not trying to determine his identity. He is not trying to forge his identity. He has simply received this identity from the Lord, and now he is living in this identity. Now, I want you to think for a moment as you consider the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about how you define your own identity. When you think about who you are, when you describe who you are to others, what are the things that first come to your mind and come out of your mouth? And does it in any way resemble Paul? What if somebody looked at your life? Would it reflect a God-surrendered identity? Would somebody be able to look at your life and see that this person is clearly living for someone else? The truth is, whether you realize it or not, you have a God-surrendered identity. The question is, is it the true and living God? Every one of us has a God-surrendered identity. It's either a lowercase g God or an uppercase g God, God, King, Creator of the universe. It's either some idol that we've bowed down to and are pursuing, or it is the true and living God. You have a master You have embraced a calling, and you are fulfilling some kind of purpose or goal through your life. The question for every one of us, is it the right master? Is it the right calling, and is it the right purpose? True identity is found, first and foremost, in surrendering to God as master, to a God-given calling, and to a God-defined purpose. But this is found only, only when you look secondly at Jesus who is defined by a glory-stamped identity. Paul now launches into really a brief explanation of the gospel of God that he himself says is the very purpose of his life. He says in verse 2, which he promised beforehand, that is the gospel, through, listen to this, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So important to recognize what Jesus does here. He makes His appeal first and foremost on the basis of the Scriptures, and He's speaking here of the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul here highlights the importance of uh, and the authority of the Old Testament Scriptures. He reminds us that they are chocked full of God-ordained and God-authored truth for us today. He tells us specifically that the Old Testament is actually about the gospel of God. It is actually about Jesus Christ Himself. And that makes sense as to why Jesus, after his own death and resurrection, he appeared as he walked along this road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. He comes up alongside two men who are trying to figure out what had just taken place in Jerusalem. And the Word of God says that as Jesus walked with them and talked to them, that he took them throughout the Scriptures to show him himself in the Old Testament. And their eyes were opened to the reality of the gospel that God had foretold long ago in the Scriptures. 
All of Scripture, catch this, Christian, all of Scripture has one dominating purpose. It's not about you, okay? The Bible doesn't exist to make you a better person. The Bible doesn't exist to give you self-help and blessing upon blessing in your daily life. It exists to highlight the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is pointing towards Jesus Christ. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote. He said this, That is the nerve, the heart, and the very center of the gospel. There is no such thing as the Christian gospel, and there is no such thing as a Christian apart from Him. Christianity, by definition, is Christ Himself, he said. And Paul points out the identity of Jesus now in some very specific ways. He, he kind of glosses over them here. It's not unimportant what he says, but what you need to know is this. Everything Paul says in these first seven verses will become the subject matter of the entire epistle in Romans. He's kind of giving us a little taste of what's to come. And he points out the identity. Notice this. Twice he makes mention of this concerning Jesus as God's Son. He is the Son of God. I want you to see how Paul draws out this glory-stamped identity of Jesus as the Son of God in three ways. First, notice this, He is the promised Messiah. Paul has already used the title Christ in the very first verse. He calls Him a servant of Christ Jesus. Christ in the Hebrew literally means Messiah. There are a lot of different ideas about what the Messiah would look like when he came in the first century and just prior to the first century. Most of the Jews at this time were awaiting a, a political figure, predominantly a political figure, somebody who would come and liberate them from the oppressors in Rome. They had a very myopic or limited understanding of, of how the Old Testament explained who this Messiah would be and, and the, the lengths of what He would actually do. According to the Old Testament, the Messiah would be one who would restore God's rule and authority to a fallen and rebellious creation. He would bring the raging and plotting nations under subjection to His authority, according to Psalm chapter 2. The Messiah was the one who would sit at the right hand of God and rule in the midst of His enemies. He was to be equal with Yahweh, according to Psalm 110. The Lord's servant would be anointed to bring the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and herald freedom to those imprisoned in captivity, according to Isaiah 61, verse 1. And you see, Paul identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed of God, the one who is promised throughout all of the Old Testament. But as you move through the Old Testament, what you see is that the vision of this Messiah is only expanded. The understanding of what He is and who He is and what He will accomplish is only broadened. And we see, secondly, that Paul identifies Him as the victorious King. Notice he says in verse 3 concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. You see, what Paul is pointing us to here is the reality of the incarnation of Jesus, the idea that God became a man. The Son of God who came was born. 
He didn't come into being, this is important, listen, he didn't come into being at this time, at the time of his birth. He is not a created being. In fact, listen to what John 17 verse 5 says about the eternal existence of Jesus. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays these words. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, in His incarnation, the glory of Jesus was veiled. People didn't understand that this was indeed God in the flesh. But what we know from the Scriptures is that Jesus is uncreated. As the old saying goes, He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Jesus is the eternal and everlasting Son of God. And he came out of eternity to his own. And you see, this statement about who Jesus was is ultimately what got him killed. John 5, 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his God, his own father, making himself equal with God. God became man. This is not some insignificant point of theology or doctrine. It is crucial to salvation. God became a man so that He could rescue men. Paul is going to elaborate extensively on this in Romans chapter 5. And as a man, Jesus was a descendant of David, the great king of Israel. All the way back in the beginning of the Bible... When humanity fell because of their sin and rebellion against God, God had promised that He would bring someone who would restore creation back to its rightful order. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that He would bring about a human being, one born of the seed of woman, and that person, though his heel would be bruised, he would himself crush the head of the serpent. The Bible begins to trace this theme of the seed, tracing it all the way down to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 specifically, where God promises that, that this one, the one who would be born, this one victorious king who was promised, he would come from the line of Abraham. He would be an Israelite. And as the promise is focused even more, God does so during the reign of David God makes a promise in 2 Samuel 7 to David himself, King David. David wants to build God a house, but God says, you're not the one who's going to build me a house. Instead, I will build you a house. One of your descendants, he promises David, will sit upon the throne, and his throne will have no end. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to David. That's what Paul is telling us here. He is the promised king who would conquer our greatest enemies, who would reign forever on an eternal throne, and that is exactly what Paul directs our attention towards next. You see, the glory of Jesus, that glory-stamped identity specifically in Jesus as the exalted Lord. It says next that He is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The emphasis here is on 
the significance of the resurrection event, of what God was doing in that moment, of what God was declaring in that moment, as well as the subsequent exaltation of Jesus. God the Father openly told the crowds that were gathered at the baptism of Jesus early on in His ministry, He said these words from heaven, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Those very same words were spoken from heaven at the transfiguration of Jesus when He stood on that holy mountain in front of only a few disciples, and God allowed Jesus to unzip the human flesh, and the glory of God came bursting forth. But what you need to understand is that all of those statements are leading up to this grand culmination that God the Father, He shouted and He declared from the heavens that Jesus is His only begotten Son by His resurrection from the dead. The religious leaders had declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy, but God, through the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, reversed the verdict and declared His Son righteous. Because Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection is the crowning achievement of Jesus, whereby God declares that the power of sin and death have been overcome by the power of God's Holy Spirit. The glory of God stamped upon Him every step of the way, which is why Paul can make this summary statement in such an emphatic way, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is nothing that declares the lordship of Jesus Christ like the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus from the dead. But the idea here of flesh and of spirit, you'll notice those kind of parallels here in this passage. He was descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirits. Christian, listen, these also point us to a new reality that we are currently, presently living in. We are living in the age of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It was inaugurated at the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. It will one day be consummated when our Lord and Savior returns in glory. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan offered to Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world if only he would bow down and worship him. Jesus refused and instead was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross as we saw, and He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. In the words of Revelation 12, 19, in the cross, in the resurrection, and in the exaltation, the great dragon, the serpent of old, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, has been cast down from heaven, and He no longer stands before God to accuse the saints. Rather, as we saw last week in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, all authority, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This means that the resurrection is one of the ways that God has indicated that the last days are currently upon us. Christ has come in the flesh 
has inaugurated the age of the Spirit, the new creation, and we are torchbearers of this kingdom, servants of the King, advancing His kingdom and His glory through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. We find our identity and therefore our purpose in Him alone. We live in Jesus because of Jesus and all for the glory of Jesus, which leads us finally to see ourselves more clearly as we look at believers with a gospel-shaped identity. In the last couple of verses, Paul comes back to his primary calling. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God chose Paul to herald the inaugurated reign of the Messiah, to call the nations away from their vain idol worship. What Paul says here in verse 5 is simply a form of the Great Commission. I don't know if you caught that. He is called by God to go out to the nations, to to make disciples, to see lost people saved and saved people matured and matured people multiplied, all to the glory of God. And you see, through the gospel, God is offering a new identity for all who by grace through faith take hold of Jesus. What is our gospel-shaped identity exactly? I want to give you five little bullet points of what our identity, our gospel-shaped identity is. In Christ first, we are revived. Paul says that he has been given this apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of the faith is a simple way of saying salvation, a salvation that is evidenced in obedience to the gospel call where human beings like you and me, we hear the call of the gospel and we, we bow the knee and we surrender because of the grace of God to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is an obedience that is also birthed from our faith. We know this personally, don't we? Obedience does not come naturally to the fallen man. This will unfold as a major theme in chapters 1 through 3 especially, and Paul knew this all too well in his own personal life. He knew how he had been walking in disobedience to God. He had to be confronted by the glory and the grace of God and rescued from his sin, called into obedience of the faith. God opened his eyes that he might believe in Jesus and that by faith he might yield obedience to God. I love what Martin Luther famously said. He said, we are saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It always manifests itself in greater and greater obedience to God and affection for God. And here we need to understand this, that God had brought Paul from death to life. He had brought him... uh, Uh, restoration. He was reborn. He was revived, spiritually speaking. And He's done the same for you and me, and He can do the same for you if you're not in Christ today. Secondly, in Christ, we are reconciled. I love these words, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
So many people feel like they don't belong. Maybe you're here today and you felt like you never fit in, like you have never been accepted. You feel alienated and rejected because of who you are and what you've done. You, you live in despair and hopelessness, or you live maybe in the, the depths of your own failure and fear of being known. This is really, in, in a sense, all of us apart from Christ. Our sin has caused a separation between us and our God, our Creator. Every one of us is alienated from God in our sinful condition. We're strangers and we're enemies of God. But God, through Jesus Christ, calls us to belong to Jesus Christ. He restores us to a right relationship. And now our identity is not shaped by our sin, by our past beliefs, or our past behaviors. Our identity is shaped by our belonging to Him. He is our God. We are His people. We were far off, and we have now been brought near. We are reconciled. Thirdly, in Christ, we are redeemed. We are redeemed. See, how is it that we can be reconciled? All because of this phrase right here, to all those in Rome and extended by extension and application to all those who are in Christ Jesus who are loved by God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, that belonging to God, that reconciliation comes only because of one reason. Why, why would God invite me into a relationship? Why would God reconcile me in a relationship with Him? Here's the only reason. Listen, because He loves you. Not because of anything you are or anything you've done, but because in eternity past, He set His love upon you. He determined to come after you. This is God's heart for His children. He loves with a perfect, holy love. And in this love, listen, this is what John says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the measure of God's love is the cross of Jesus Christ. God at the cross did not forget your sin. He forgave your sin. He did not dismiss your sin. He died for your sin. He bought you with the infinitely precious blood of His Son. You have been redeemed. Fourth, in Christ, we are remade. He says that we are loved by God and, look at this, called to be saints. Do we sin? Yeah. Are we sinners? Yes. But is that now the primary identity of our lives? No, the Bible says. The Bible says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have been remade. We are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. This is now who we are, and as a result, how we are called to live out this obedience of the faith. Finally, in Christ we are recipients. He closes with this prayer, but this prayer is 
100% true in this moment if you're in Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, none of what we have in Christ is deserved. None of what we've been given in Christ can be earned. We are simply unworthy recipients of His grace and unworthy recipients of His steadfast peace. God in the gospel has given us peace with God the Father. That is objectively true. And day by day, as we reflect on this objective peace we have with God through the gospel, God continues to pour out for us a subjective peace as we know His presence and His power in our lives. You see, there are only two kinds of identities at the end of the day. Identities that are achieved or identities that are received. And God holds out to all of us a gospel identity that smashes to pieces every other man-made identity. And He invites all to come and grab hold of this gospel-shaped identity by grabbing hold of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord. 